Welcome to the NutraStrong podcast, Campfire Nutrition. I'm William Rowe, CEO and co-founder of NutraSource. Over the last 20 years in the nutrition business, we've helped companies around the world commercialize their products. Still to this day, some of these nutritional concepts are difficult to understand. I'm on a mission to help you, the consuming public, understand nutrition better. Join me as I sit down with nutrition industry leaders for casual chat that I hope you find educational and fun. Thank you. Have a great episode. All right, so welcome to the Nutra Strong Campfire Nutrition Nutrition Made Easy podcast. Today's guest is Ivan Wasserman from the U.S. regulatory law firm Amint Haladi Wasserman. Uh, we're honored and thankful that Ivan could uh, take some time for us today to talk about whatever he'd like to talk about, but we'll focus in various areas uh, around the dietary supplement industry. The last thing we just want to always disclose is that uh, NutraSource and Amintilati Wasserman uh, have worked on a number of files and have worked together over the years uh, to help support the nutrition industry in the U.S. and otherwise. So, Ivan, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a privilege and uh, an honor to be here with you, Will, and very excited to uh, to chat. Wonderful. Yeah. So Ivan, t- tell us. Uh, a lot of people in uh, in our industry are aware of your firm and and uh, your activity, uh, which is multifaceted. But tell us a bit about yourself and why you woke up one day and said, "I really want to be a U.S. regulatory attorney <laughs> and senior partner." And he goes, "What? What, what was that turning point for you?" <laughs> well, it's quite a story. Well, I, I, I a lot of people do ask me that and. Quite honestly, I ask myself that from time to time. Uh, if you had if you had told me in, when I was in law school that I was going to be uh, specializing in, in dietary supplements and cosmetics, I would have said, you are out of your mind. And here I am 27 years later. Um, no, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the tale of a, of a Jewish son whose parents said, you're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, and, uh, I was too, you know, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but I was not going to, in undergrad, take the, the requisite, uh, requirements for, for pre-med. Uh, so therefore my other choice was, was being a lawyer. Um, and off I went to law school after paralegaling in Manhattan for a year at a, at a big corporate uh, law firm. Um, you know, you know me, others know me. Uh, I may be the least, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, adversarial lawyer there is. <laughs> I may be the least controversial, uh, confrontational lawyer there is. Um, and so, you know, knowing me in high school, knowing me growing up, you wouldn't picture me, you know, fighting the big court battles uh, where it's really, you know, one person fighting another person or teams fighting each other. Uh, you know, not, not that I'm denigrating that area of law. My wife is an incredible litigator, uh, but that's sort of not my personality. Um, I went to law school thinking, believe it or not, that I was going to be an international lawyer specializing in working with Japanese because I uh, studied Japanese in undergrad and spent a semester there. Got to law school, realized that there wasn't a ton of jobs in doing international law (laughs) with Japan. And I should say I went to law school in Washington, D.C. And when you're in Washington, D.C., uh, as opposed to most other parts of the country, you realize that there's sort of this almost niche area of law 
regulatory law. I think most people, you know, thinking about what lawyers do, um, they, you know, picture the television shows and whatnot, and they're either yeah. in court, you know, doing wonderful work, they're defending criminals or prosecuting criminals, or they're doing, you know, maybe not so much on TV, but the other side is business law, right? Doing big corporate transactions, doing IPOs and doing mergers and acquisitions amongst different companies. None of that was too interesting for me. Uh, but when I went to Washington, I realized, wow, I used to love watching advertisements. I still do. Or reading the label of my shampoo bottle. Uh, there's actually lawyers that do that. It was a little bit of an uh, <laughs> eye-opening thing for me. And so, uh, you know, right actually in law school, my first job was working for a healthcare law firm, you know, where uh, basically full-time what they did was they represented hospitals in front of Medicare appear, appeal boards. So basically, uh, at the end of every fiscal year, every hospital works with the federal government in the United States, figuring out whether the government owes them money or whether they owe the government money. And it's sort of a true up at the end of the year with Medicare and the government payers. I know you don't have that issue in Canada because you have a national healthcare system, which is a whole different thing, but that's what happens here. And I was in law school when I had this, it was a summer job. And I went up to the managing partner of the firm at the time and I dutifully asked, so, so what, what course should I take third year in law school to prepare me for a career as a healthcare lawyer? And the gentleman looked me in the eye and he said, accounting, because that's what it is. It's like, how many full-time employees? Can you depreciate that x-ray machine? All this stuff goes into it. And so I sort of realized then and there, again, not to denigrate the great profession of healthcare lawyers, it just wasn't for me because I'm sort of a creative fella. And then, you know, the next thing I know, I saw a, an ad in the, then the newspaper, now it's all online, the Legal Times. Uh, for a food and drug law associate. I said, food and drug law, what's that? And uh, I applied and I got the job. And 27 years later, here I am. Wow. So, so you, didn't, shampoo, you, didn't, you didn't know that. Shampoo got you going. Shampoo, shampoo got me going. The, the story of every lawyer's career is shampoo. It always gets yeah. down to that. <laughs> um, yeah, so then just real briefly, I, I got a first job at a small boutique. Uh, I left that after a couple of years and went to a large law firm. And, you know, for, for those of you who aren't in the legal world, sort of have different levels of law firms or law practices, starting with sole practitioners, which is which is one man or woman, uh, call it hanging out a shingle. You know, I'm right. a lawyer. Here's my sign. And then you can go to small firms, which are also known as boutiques. And then you get to national large firms or international law firms. There's law firms right now that have 8,000 lawyers in, in one law firm all over the world. You know, 500 lawyers used to be big law when I was a kid, but now that's almost mid-size because there's 2,000, 3,000 lawyer firms. And so I was at a series of large law firms all based in Washington doing basically what I still do now. And then about five years ago, uh, well, I shouldn't say that and stop me if I'm prattling on too much, but um my, my law firm that I'm at now uh, was founded by uh, Rakesh Amin and Atish Tiwani. I'm going to mess up how many years ago. But um, they're both from Chicago. Uh, the firm was only in Chicago. It was uh, at the time I joined about 15, 20 lawyers or so, really specialized in food law, uh, dietary supplement law, beverages, uh, cosmetics, and the like. 
So even though it, the law firm I was at at the time had 500 some odd lawyers, it was really myself and a couple others doing this kind of law. And I was intrigued by rejoining a smaller firm that was 100% dedicated uh, to serving this industry um, of dietary supplements. And so four or five years ago, I said, do you guys really want a Washington DC office? Luckily they said yes. And I joined and started a, an office in Washington. So now we're in Chicago and Washington and we're about 24 lawyers. And we sort of do whatever a law firm, whatever we like to say, we do whatever a, a someone selling one of those products, sort of like products regulated by FDA that you don't need a doctor for <laughs> on the regulatory and IP side. And IP is patents and trademarks. So any kind of FDA regulation, which I know we'll talk about in this podcast, and we also help them with protecting their name, uh, protecting their patent if they have it. So if you say, hey, I'm John and I have John's new applesauce and I'm going to call it Johnny's applesauce, we can help them decide exactly what has to be on the label of that applesauce, mm. how the applesauce has to be manufactured, which is all governed by federal regulations, and then also protect the name Johnny's applesauce. Very good. So it's, it's not just the protection of the brand itself, it's the protection of the product and how it's made. Uh, and where do the challenges typically come from when you have to assist your clients in protecting those things? Does it come more from the government side or more from other companies typically? Typically, so, so you try to comply with the government regulations, of course, which we can talk about. But typically, certainly on the on the trademark side and the patent side, it would come from other companies. So if Johnny's Applesauce launches their product and we realize that there's a Johnny's Plum Sauce, if there is such a thing out there already, um, I'm not up on my fruit sauces, um, you know, or or Johnny's Apple Jelly, you might hear from that company say, hey, you're, you're infringing on my name. People are going to be confused. They're going to think your applesauce product uh, is the same company as my apple jelly product, to, to make a silly example. So, yeah, yeah we'd, have to, we'd end up fighting with them. Uh, so making sure your, your name is going to be okay before you launch because your name for a new product is so important uh, is very important. As far as sort of what you say on your product, we can talk more about that. If you say your product is your applesauce product is is low sugar, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's federal regulations on that. You actually can't say a product is low sugar, or let's say it's high protein, which there are regulations on that. If it's not high protein, you could hear from the government, the FDA. You could hear from your competitor applesauce product, who could sue you because you're making an untrue claim. Or you could hear from consumers in a class action, which we can talk about more, uh, basically saying anyone who bought that product was tricked because you falsely claimed it was high protein when it's not. And therefore, you have to give everyone their money back. Now, that's a cool, cool one or interesting one I'd like to unpack further. So as I'm sure you're aware, in, in sort of the Canadian landscape, what we call natural health products, what are called dietary supplements in the U.S., they go through a, an approvals process before they hit the market. Whereas in the U.S., it's, it, it's a compliance as opposed to an authorization, a pre-market authorization. So it seems like 
one of the enforcement angles or one of the ways in which this gets checked and balanced, unfairly or not, uh, is through the class action lawsuit technique or tactic. So for some of us outside of the U.S., we find this whole thing very interesting. And, and, And sometimes you get into class action type suits in Canada as well, but not really around health products so much, unless they're like totally messed up. But then usually the government's held liable because they've approved something that shouldn't have been approved. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about what what in the world is a class action suit? And are they just really people trying to grab as much cash as possible? Or how are the mechanics of it? How does it work? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I assume that's not the only thing that non-U.S. people find interesting or strange about the U.S. <laughs> it's in the top 12. We, we could do a whole podcast on what's weird about the U.S., I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> but but that is certainly one of them. Um, yes, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating question, and it's a fascinating world that we find ourselves in. Yes, yeah, so you can start selling a food dietary supplement. A diet, let's just stick with dietary supplements the equivalent of natural health products in Canada uh, without any type of government authority or review saying, yes, your product reduces, let me think of a good one, you know, makes you lose weight, like lose 12 pounds or, um, you know, will will help improve your memory. Let's go with memory, Uh, improve memory claims. Uh, You can launch that product in the United States without any type of government review. You know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, obviously, from a marketer's perspective, it's great not to have your hands shackled by the uh, government. And you can, if you think you're right, uh, you can go ahead and start selling that product. Unlike Canada, Mm -hmm. unlike Europe, other places where you really only can say what the government says, you're right. On the flip side, it's a great deal of comfort to marketers knowing that the government said you can say something because then no one can second guess you. So uh, so there's sort of that double-edged sword, right? From mm-hmm. flexibility and being able to market your product the way you wanted versus sort of nakedly putting yourself out there and risk the government saying you were wrong. And we can talk more about that. Class action saying you're wrong and competitors saying you're wrong. Your product doesn't make you lose weight. It doesn't uh, improve your memory. And what's, what's also interesting to me about that is it doesn't, that rule, of course, thankfully, doesn't apply to prescription drug products. So after a prescription drug gets approved, FDA, Federal Food and Drug Administration, says exactly what you can say about your product, what you can't say about your product, what warnings you have to have on your product. Um, but if you think about it, um, you know, those drug companies to get a drug approved by FDA are very well capitalized companies. They're spending millions and millions of dollars to do all the right studies and to spend go through the FDA approval process. They're the ones who, you know, are sophisticated enough that should be able to know exactly what they can say. On the flip side, some dietary supplement companies are, are very small. Uh, some mm-hmm. cosmetic companies are very small. Some food companies are very small. And they're sort of left to their own devices to figure out what they can say and what they can't say about the product. I always thought that was kind of interesting. So and it seems to me it's not, yeah. it's for some of them, it's like, catch me if you can, but others, I, appear to me that they think they're doing the right thing, even though they're inadvertently 
misstepping or they, they're not intentionally offside with regulations or guidance or GMP. Uh, there's just not a great framework to work within. You're, you're right. No, you, I, we've obviously got tons of different clients over the years. I know Nutrisource does, and some of them really just don't understand what they need to do, what legwork they need to do. Those are, you know, they really do honestly believe in their products. Um, and again, the fact that there's a class action or something doesn't mean their products don't work. Uh, that's not the standard. Uh, they have to have proof that their products work in the form of scientific clinical studies, uh, such as what Nutrisource does. And, um, you know, having a great study behind your product is going to save you a lot of headaches down the road. But it's upfront costs that some companies don't want to spend. And what I always tell clients and what I'm sure you tell your potential customers that want to do a, that are saying, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't want to do a clinical trial right now. It's, it's too expensive. You know, it, it's a lot less expensive to help a company stay out of trouble and to get out of trouble once it's in trouble, <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense. Um, yes. So we do use the pay, pay now versus pay later argument. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Penny wise, pound foolish, whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, right. But that, but none of that was your original question. Your original question was a class action. That's <laughs> lawyers no, it's like, all good, though. like yeah. to like to talk. So, yeah. So the way class actions work is. Uh, so if you're saying your product in the, is not is high protein and it's not. Uh, is natural and it's not, and we can talk about that, you know, is, uh, is um, you know, free of artificial something. And someone, a private person, in theory, the way it works is a private person, a citizen of the United States buys a product thinking it's free of artificial colors, looks at the label and says, aha, isn't that an artificial color? or an artificial flavor, citric acid. Hmm, isn't that an artificial flavor? He or she then thinks to go to a law firm or a lawyer and says, man, I, I, I just paid $25 for this product and I really did it because it said it had no artificial flavors and isn't citric acid an artificial flavor? And the lawyer says, you know, you're right. And then the lawyer uh, then writes a letter uh, to the company saying my client uh, bought this product because it said no artificial flavors. Uh, in fact, it contains what we believe to be an artificial flavor. Therefore, uh, pay us or therefore, please let us know if you want to settle this case prior to litigation. And what that essentially means is if, if the company doesn't pay the lawyer, uh, the lawyer may bring a lawsuit against the company. And the lawsuit will say, on behalf of this person and everyone like this person, uh, we're suing you. So that's what's called a class. It's not You're not just suing on behalf of Ivan or William, you're just suing Ivan and William and everyone else who bought this product for the same reason. If the lawsuit's just for me, what are my damages? $25, right? The cost of that one product. Mm. If the lawyer's for me, if the, if the lawsuit's on behalf of me and you, and a million other people that brought the product, then the company is facing 25 times a million. What's that, 25 million? <laughs> I get confused. <laughs> I see why you said no to accounting. <laughs> oh my God, I'm, math is so hard for me. <laughs> 
So, so the lawyers wants to obviously bring a class because that's mm -hmm. how they make their money. Uh, so, so yeah. So, I mean, to your point of are they legitimate or are they just extortion? Uh, and I think the answer is they're both uh, or either. Uh, we certainly see some that have no basis whatsoever. And it seems like the, the lawyer is really just basically counting on the fact that even though there's no basis in the, in the, for the case, you know, clearly it doesn't have any artificial flavors or clearly it does support your memory and whatever. Um, the lawyer is counting on the fact that in order to defend that case in the United States. So the United States, some countries have loser pays, the lawyers, that isn't the case in the United States. So they know that, you know, to go to court, to get it thrown out because it's baseless, is gonna cost a lot of money. So they're hoping that you'll pay them some money to settle the case to avoid paying more to get it thrown out of court. But also potentially avoid any uh incremental brand damage or reputation yeah. damage as well, right? Yeah, because before settlement, it's all private. Before a, a case is filed, there's, it's not, it's all private. But uh, once it's filed, it's public. On the other side, I, you know, I won't say they're all bad. There's certainly been a lot of lawsuits brought and filed that are, are legitimate and they're serving a consumer protection benefit. So, uh, so they're, they're definitely both kinds. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And one of the others I wanted to ask, you, you talked about the sort of the misleading or false uh, label wording around something that didn't or claims to not have artificial flavors, but does or claims or, 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 or the uh, suit is around or the actions around, hey, there, there is artificial flavors in there. And then that gets proven out one way or the other. But around the uh, claims validation, claims substantiation, that's the one I always find really, really intriguing because to me, even an approved pharmaceutical drug that's gone through the IND pathway with FDA, investigation of new drug is approved as a new drug. Way to go, great, millions of dollars, five to 15 years, uh, except recently with vaccines and warp speed and things like that. Uh, but with even the some of the most efficacious drugs out there, there's always a group within the patient population it targets that is ineffective for whatever reason. There's always that subpopulation within the patient group where the drug just doesn't work. It works on 80% of the patient population or 90%. So I always struggled with whether it's the um, class action or government enforcement that says, well, your, your claim's not validated because I used your product for say joint pain and my joints still feel like crap well okay maybe maybe it works for 70 percent of the population but you're part of the 30 percent it doesn't work for just like prescription drugs that are far stronger than for joint pain so how, how do you even bring that forward or how do you even make that happen is it more that they're relying on that there's no evidence or very very weak evidence to support that anybody benefits from it for joint pain that's where i always got confused on the class action or government enforcement side there's drugs that don't work for everybody too in that patient. absolutely i mean on both the drug side and the supplement side you know to show efficacy you have to show it works better than a placebo uh you know you don't have to show that it works for everyone and most drugs don't i think claritin the 
the very large selling uh, allergy pill has like a 50% efficacy rate, like 50% of the people don't respond to it, something like that. Um, so you're right. Uh, I, I do think that while someone could allege that as the basis for their lawsuit, that it didn't work for me, ultimately, if there is justice in the world, that wouldn't end up winning. That case wouldn't win. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, that might be a case, you know, if the company is willing to fight it, uh, certainly they should. You know, unfortunately, like I said, some companies just don't have the money to fight it. So they'll, they'll pay a settlement to make it, to make it stop. Yeah. But the burden, burden shifting is, is interesting. Uh, and I'll try to keep this on a, on a relatively non-legal uh, level, but Ooh, burden shifting. That sounds burden shifting. Sexy. That's awesome. Okay. Now, but burden shifting is really important because depending on who's challenging the claim, whose burden, who, who's got the job to show the claim is truthful or that the claim is false. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like you've seen all the cop shows or all the trial shows, you know, have he's, has he proven it beyond, has the prosecution proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he murdered his wife, right? So at that point, the, 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 the husband <laughs> who's being accused of murdering the wife, it's not his duty to show anything, right? He doesn't have to show he's innocent. You can just sit there and be quiet. But the, the prosecution has to show beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty in order for that case to be decided against the husband and the husband goes to jail. Um, so th as non-criminal lawyers, we also deal with this, these burden issues all the time. If the government- less extreme usually. Less usually extreme. no one's going to jail. <laughs> what Thank if a multivitamin gummy was used in the commission of the crime? Well, then yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Did they choke on that gummy? <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> so, so the burden shifting. So if the government and, and, and the government, re the regulation over vitamins and minerals, dietary supplements, and cosmetics is sort of bifurcated to do different regulators. On the one hand, you have the Federal Food and Drug Administration, and they have primary jurisdiction over what's literally on the label of the product primarily. So what it says on the label, they also of course have jurisdiction over how it's made and the safety of the ingredients and stuff like that. Uh, on the other hand, the, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, they're the kind of truth in advertising cops. So if someone says something on a television commercial that says the product's gonna improve memory or the product's gonna make your joints not hurt, the Federal Trade Commission uh, can bring an investigation against television claims in the television commercial. So it's a little bit of a bifurcated thing here. And it's trifurcated, I suppose, because FDA has jurisdiction over food other than stuff regulated by USDA, the Department of Agriculture, who regulates meat, shell eggs, and what else do they regulate? Uh, poultry, I guess. Um, so it's such a messed up system in the United States. If you have a cheese pizza, it's regulated by FDA. If you have a pepperoni pizza, it might be regulated by USDA, depending on how much pepperoni is on it. <laughs> Remember our podcast about what's weird about the United States? <laughs> um, but anyway, I digress. So back to burden shifting. So if the Federal Trade Commission brings an investigation against the company for um, 
saying whatever is wrong. It's the burden on the company, the advertiser, to prove mm -hmm. the claim is true. So they're going to say, here's my two studies done by Nutrisource. They're perfect. This product does make your joints feel better. Not for everyone, but more than the placebo. The Federal Trade Commission's like, yep, you, you met your burden. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the class action side, so remember that's Johnny walking into his lawyer saying my joints didn't feel better. Uh, the burden's actually on Johnny to prove the claim is false. So it's it's not, ah. yeah. And so whether it's got a natural flavor in the product or whether, you know, that's kind of easy because it's sort of, you look at the ingredient list. Um, yes. But but they would literally it. have to come up with better science than, than you have to show that the, that the product doesn't make your joints mm -hmm. feel better. And just that his joints didn't feel better wouldn't carry his burden. Wow, that's so cool. That's interesting mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And then if someone, generally speaking, if someone goes through that FTC process and says, look, here are my two RCTs, my randomized controlled trials, they were better than placebo. And the FTC says, yeah, you guys are good to go. Have a nice day. Does that typically then keep the class action activity for the most part at bay? Unfortunately not because that's, well, mostly when that happens, that never becomes public. Mm. So when the FTC is, does an investigation, it's non-public up until the time they either file a lawsuit against the company or announce a settlement with the company. So if it's just, oh, you seem fine, have a nice day, oftentimes that's never public. Would the company not want to market that, though? Uh, I don't think the FTC would like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it comes from that side of things. Okay, yeah. from the government, the government doesn't want that. Okay. Yeah, no, because if the company launched an ad campaign that said the FTC thinks our claims are fine, that wouldn't go over well. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Because it's also not just thinks our claims are fine. It's like, who knows why the FTC stopped it? It's like, we, we don't think it's a good enough case to pursue it. They could drop a case for any number of reasons. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. So with all this going on, I, I do subscribe to certain feeds like FDA warning letters, and I got a very interesting uh, email. I think it went out earlier this morning or late yesterday, whenever that gets timed out from the FDA servers, but the dietary supplement industry, bunch of brands, again, getting uh, warning letters around COVID-related uh, claims and treatment and diagnosis and curing. Uh, symptoms or COVID itself. So from that perspective, have you found that, that that's really taken over a lot of activity for for you guys? Or what are some of the, the hot areas without, you know, having to disclose anything specific on any files you're working on? But, you know, obviously, and I don't want to get into a big COVID discussion, but has, has COVID regulatory work really proportionally taken on more of your time, generally speaking, over the last little while? Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly an interest. We've seen a spike among clients, as you can imagine, trying to lawfully claim that their products, you know, help with the immune system and immune health. Uh, and as you noted, you know, you can't claim a dietary supplement under the law, even if it's true, even if you've got amazing studies, uh, you can't legally claim that a dietary supplement 
prevents or treats a disease, colds and flu are a disease in FDA's mind, uh, as is COVID. And so there's been a lot of warning letters on COVID. So yeah, so you know, our side of the firm, uh, the supplement side of the firm has been busy helping people lawfully communicate the benefits that their dietary supplements have uh, in mm. supporting a healthy immune system, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, you know, vitamins, vitamin D, vitamin C, they're all very well known to, to uh, help keep your immune system going strong. We also have a medical device side of the law firm, which I know this isn't what this is focused on, but they've obviously been very busy helping people with masks, helping people with COVID testing kits. And, you know, it makes you feel good as a, as a law firm that we're helping fight the pandemic since, since the get-go. Uh, the, the interest in masks and hand sanitizers, you know, were, were overwhelming during the early months of the pandemic. Um, and FDA relaxed their rules on, on who could, you know, because there was a shortage of hand sanitizers. So they relaxed their rules on manufacturing requirements for hand sanitizers and, and uh, masks and things. So uh, we, we helped a lot of com- great companies on that front. What's, what's, what's really interesting, and there was a warning letter that came out yesterday or the day before against a pretty big supplement company, is this kind of separation of church and state, I like to call it. We've had a lot of companies come to us and say, we know there's really good science on our products, you know, for COVID or for anything, for arthritis, for whatever, things we're not allowed to say. There's amazing science on this product. But we're doing a disservice to to our to the world, <laughs> to our customers, to doctors, to whoever, by not sharing this evidence with them, this information. You know, how can we sort of separate editorial, uh, educational content from marketing content. And when the law was first passed, uh, it's called DSHA, the Dietary Supplement Act, which allowed dietary supplements in 1994. Uh, it was pre-internet, right? Internet was a was a little baby in 1994. Mm-hmm. And, and Congress included a provision in the law in 1994 called the Reading Room Exception. And basically it was, you know, health food stores and drug stores were concerned that if they sold vitamin C and next to it was a book about how vitamin C cures cancer, you know, would that be illegal? So selling a book that says vitamin C cures cancer is protected by the First Amendment. You can say whatever you want in a book. Uh, no one can stop you. But once you're selling a product that becomes less, it's called commercial speech, not to bore with legal stuff, but it becomes subject to regulation against false or misleading information. And so these health food stores were like, well, you know, are, are all of a sudden, because we're selling vitamin C and selling a book about how vitamin C cures cancer, are, is the health food store going to get in trouble? And so the law included a provision which allows for that to happen, but but it's literally like it's supposed to be, the books are supposed to be in a separate section from the vitamin C. It's supposed to be actual third-party literature without any branding by the supplement companies and things like that. Yeah. And so, so ever like, since, uh, buy two bottles of vitamin C and get the book for free. Yeah, like that, like that. right. You're not supposed to yeah. do that even back in 94. So now the question is, how does that logic apply to an online world where we're not going into natural food stores or on the e-commerce site? I'm sure you've seen some where you click on it and it says, now you're leaving this site and you're going to another place, right? So that's one way companies are trying to deal with that. And so we've been spending a lot of time 
helping companies figure out, and FDA has never been 100% clear on how you do this. So we've been spending a lot of time helping companies figure out how to separate that content. Excellent. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, tied to your prior comments as well, when you look at books or labels or something posted that the company puts on, tweets out or posts on LinkedIn, essentially is all of that fair game? Yeah, if, if you post on LinkedIn, if you post on Facebook and you're the company, that's definitely considered commercial speech if you're talking about your product. When, and it's not that you but, can't do that. It's a matter of not crossing the line and providing misleading information in their statements. Is that misleading or the you know saying your supplement cures cancer? Right. Yeah. Uh, the same rules applies. And FDA, FDA really. So it's so you know the online world is so crazy. You know I can go right now on a supplement company's Facebook page and say that your product cured my cancer, they can't stop me. Uh, and FDA kind of recognizes that. And where companies have literally gotten in trouble is not the fact that some random stranger posted that on a Facebook page or on an Amazon review or whatever. It's when mm -hmm. the company liked the comment. <laughs> it's literally the like is what got them in trouble with the FDA. Wow. Unbelievable. But yeah. kind of believable. Right. <laughs> well, Ivan, as, as we wrap up here, this has been great, really insightful, really interesting. What are some of the sort of hot button trending topics, again, without getting into specific details or, or any breaches of confidentiality? And, you know, in our worlds, we have to always be wary, be wary of that. But what are some of the big trends you see uh, in terms of activity and the industry and where things are headed, especially now with the new administration, where where do you see things becoming either more open or more closed or hot button issues that you didn't see previously? Um, yeah, I mean, I thought about that and, you know, it's a little bit of what's old is new again, right? So <laughs> a lot of the Biden guys are the Obama guys. And so there's sort of a, a, a what do I want to call it? Old wives' tale or rule of thumb or scheme that, you know, Republican administrations are more pro-business and and less focused on consumer protection, and Democratic uh, administrations are the opposite. But you know, historically, at least I haven't seen a big shift in the Federal Trade Commission's enforcement priorities, a big shift in FDA's regulatory priorities, at least with respect to to the dietary supplement world. So maybe we'll see a little bit shift towards greater enforcement, but I don't, I don't, I honestly don't see a dramatic shift. One thing that we are seeing a shift in, and, and Biden has made a uh, point of wanting it to be a priority, is imported products. Uh, you're supposed to say made in China. We all can look at our television or computer, and I'm sure we'll see that on there. Um, but uh, made in USA. Uh, I don't know about for Canada, but for for American citizens, that's a big mark. That's a big plus. They they look for that, and um, but that's just marketing. If your product's made in USA, you don't have to say that. But if you do say it, uh, the standard is not only does it have to be made in the USA. So for a supplement, various ingredients need to be blended and put in a pill and put in a bottle in the USA. But all the ingredients, or virtually all the ingredients, also have to be from the USA. So if you're taking, uh, you're making a multivitamin, let's say, and you're 
your vitamin C is from China, your vitamin D is from India, your vitamin E is from somewhere else, and you're putting it in a product here, you can't lawfully say that's made in USA. And the uh, we're seeing a big uptick in enforcement at the Federal Trade Commission uh, for, for those claims, false claims. So the um, the supply chain really, if you're saying made in USA, really has to extend throughout. You can't, like the, there's no jumping off point one level no, into your supply There's no chain. jumping off point, not for, unless yeah. it's really, unless it's really minor. So we're not seeing any slowdown in class actions. We are seeing, you know, obviously every year we're seeing more consumer awareness, uh, more educated consumers. So yeah, having, just making sure more consumer activists, you know, making sure you, your supply chain is buttoned down, you, you know where your ingredients are coming from, that, that your studies are, that your claims are all backed by great science, you know, is only gonna be more important every year. Yeah, no, no question. And I think with uh, the, the next waves of generations and the way they just research stuff and do diligence on stuff to the nth degree, they wanna know the story behind the products, the, uh, a social outlook of the companies behind the products. Uh, they want to research it bef uh, like never before. Not everybody, of course, but that's certainly kind of a big deal. And they, they feel educated enough that if something is misrepresented, they're going to talk about it. Uh, and and yeah, consumer activism is really coming on strong. And the tools are in place to embolden that as well. Absolutely. And you don't want to be caught in, in a lie because that's just going to live on forever on the internet. Yes. The populace can now publish. So Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. The one last point I just want to touch on quickly, it hasn't come up yet. And, and this goes into a, maybe our future podcast of 12 weird things about the U.S. that people outside of the U.S. really want to know more about. And that is, <laughs> what in the world is going on with CBD in your country? <laughs> Um, that's definitely a whole other podcast. CBD is... If you can't, if you can't give a short answer, that's fine. But it's just something gets approved, something you can't do this, you can do this. And it just yeah, seems like so certain states not... are way ahead and then other states are way behind. And then federally, it's all illegal. Like, I, it's just so confusing. It's all very confusing. Uh, I'll try to be very... So hemp, so anything that's derived from actual marijuana is still illegal federally to do anything with. If it's hemp, and I won't get into the nuances between hemp and ethnobotany issues because I'm no expert in it, uh, then it's not covered as a controlled substance, so you're not going to get busted by the, the DEA for being a drug dealer. So CBD derived from regular pots. So CBD's cannabidiol, it comes from the marijuana, or it comes from cannabis. Uh, and it's thought, it doesn't get you high, that's THC, uh, and it's thought to have uh, medicinal values and pain relief and, and stress reduction, all kinds of things. So the regulatory, I'm not going to get into the scientific side, but the legal regulatory side is mm -hmm. there uh, is a, so if it's dry from hemp, it's okay, you're not going to get busted by the drug guys. There's a weird provision in the Food and Drug Act which says if a substance was studied as a drug before it was ever used in a dietary supplement, poof, forever it can't be in a dietary supplement uh, unless FDA says it can be. And the reason for that 
is not a safety issue. Uh, it's a economic issue to sort of incentivize drug companies to spend the money on doing drug research and FDA approval without having some company just be able to sell the product as a dietary supplement. So that's really the reason for that. And okay. CBD, very highly purified CBD was studied as a drug and ultimately approved as a drug for the treatment of certain forms of epilepsy. It's very effective in, in patients. And so that's the rub. So because of that provision, FDA has said it can't be in supplements or, or foods. And nevertheless, your viewers are saying it's everywhere. What are you talking about? <laughs> Ivan, Ivan has no idea what he's talking about. Um, and yeah, the short answer is FDA is sort of not actively stopping people from doing that, even though they're telling everyone it's illegal, as they are sort of working their way through figuring out how to responsibly and safely sort of put the lion back in the bag uh, with, with controls over it. Uh, and at the same time, as you mentioned, all 50 states are sort of doing their own thing uh, in the absence of strict federal regulation. And so, yeah, if you're launching a CBD product nationally, you really got to be up on all 50 states and keeping track of what the, the feds are doing. And, and we're doing that as a law firm for a lot of people. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It does seem like quite the patchwork. So, yeah. I guess some of that regulatory confusion actually drive some business uh, for all of us to some extent. It does. Yeah. Changing the law might not be good for companies, but it's always good for law firms for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, guys just, you guys just got a marijuana type license of some sort in Canada, I saw. We got the uh, Cannabis Institutional Research License with Health Canada, which allows us to uh, get abbreviated approvals to run human clinical studies at our facility, at our site. In Guelph, Ontario. So wonderful. That's exciting. That's great. So rather than going through the whole process each and every time somebody shows up and wants to study uh, cannabis in humans, we have uh, a fast track for approval with Health Canada or authorization. It's not really an approval, it's an authorization to proceed. Yeah. Great. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, yeah, with that, Ivan, I uh, really appreciate having you on today and uh, giving up a billable hour for us. I appreciate that. And so freebie. Uh, you, you do great work. You're, I'm in Talati Wasserman, do great work. And uh, thanks again for all your support of the industry. Really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Will. It's been great. Thank you for joining the NutriStrong Campfire Nutrition Podcast. We hope you found this episode both educational and fun. Hope to see you again soon. If you want to check us out further, you can go to Nutrisource.ca or go to certifications.nutrisource.ca. Thank you kindly, and I hope you have a great day. Bye for now.